Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Booyah! You usually do that. Whoa. That was terrible, yeah, wasn't it? Well. Booyah. Um, welcome to the Investories <laughs> podcast. Uh, we're, we're late on this one, actually, Kyle. Are we? Yeah. Oh, jeez. And I, I hold my hand up. I was sick. I sounded like a bear or with a cold or something like that. I don't know. I, Is that the real reason why you didn't shave? You were sick? And yeah, that, I was really, I was, I was yeah. fine. I felt fine, but I had a really sore throat. And I just sounded uh, horrendous. I could run. I ran 10 miles at the weekend. So that's pretty good. 10 miles? Yeah. Jeez, man. Like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Just kept running. Um, but anyway, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Doing really good. Yeah? What have you been up to? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Just uh, pretty much doing the same old, same old. I'm on day 60 of 75 hard. So the end is in sight. I got about two weeks left. My wife did it with me, and she's a week ahead because, of course, I got sick on day three, so I had to start over. Oh. But, uh, man, it's been a really cool experience. It really has. It's been fun. What, and what is that? So 75 hard, people can Google what that is. What does your version of it look like? What, what adjustments have you had to make? Yeah, so I am that guy who never drank water, like ever. Like, I just was not a water drinker. I think it tastes like water. <laughs> And which is which is not a good thing. I need, I need something with a little bit of flavor. And so I drank coffee all day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd switch afternoon. I'd switch over to like decaf and then just keep on cranking them down. And uh, but in seventy five hard, you got to drink a gallon a day. You can't put any kind of flavorings in them. Nothing like that. It's straight up water. Wow. So that was the hardest adjustment for me. But there's two workouts a day. That was easy. Um, I was pretty much not really doing two a day, but at least working out every day. So just adding a you know a nice brisk walk at nighttime actually really kind of helped the experience. It was fun. Um, you got to read a book, a self-help book every single day, 10 pages, which is, you know, I did that anyways. So that was really mm-hmm. easy. And, uh, you got to follow a diet, which for me is just a, I'm trying to do, I'm like a bulk phase is what they call it, where you're trying to put on muscle, you know, so I just have to crank down a crap ton of food and, um, that's easy. <laughs> I mean, really, it's not that bad. You know, if you're already an active person, you got to try it. It's a great mindset thing. You learn a lot about yourself. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm going to try that, I think. Um, i got a vacation planned in April, so after that. But I'm a bit like a greyhound in the fact that I don't do anything and then run <laughs> like a crazy person right. and then kind of chill. And, and yeah, so I, but, but that's the challenge, right? That sounds, sounds pretty interesting. It is, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, so today we've got Grace on the call, on, on the call, on the episode. Is that right? On the show? Eh, oh, it was yeah, a show, days. call episode. So, yeah. And Grace is based in uh, where was she based? Somewhere. She's out. in Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids. Iowa. That was it. East what was yeah. it? Eastern Iowa. That was what I was trying Eastern to think Iowa. of. Eastern Iowa. Which I don't yeah. know if I'd know where Western Iowa is, so it doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really help me. <laughs> I'm gonna get you a map. Yeah, that's what I need. I've got the two side bits of the U.S. sorted. It's the stuff in the middle. The side right? bits. Yeah. yeah. So the East Coast, West Coast. Anyway, um, but yeah, your Brit- your British is showing. Yeah. Grace is awesome. Grace has um, done a ton of creative investing deals, dabbled in midterm rentals, um, and really just built knowledge through connecting with people and being curious and being open and 
um, you know, making those those broad steps that we probably all should have made um, finishing college. And, um, you know, that that part of that is being educated and getting educated in, in how real estate works, but also then in terms of making good financial decisions about um, house hacking or, you know, burrs, that kind of stuff. So that that was super interesting for me. It's kind of like a, a portal back to uh, to see how someone with a more sensible, responsible mind kind of processes through, oh, this is kind of where I want to get to. So that was that was super interesting. Yeah, and she she started like a lot of us did, which is you know very meager and, and small. And and one thing that she was really good at is recognizing opportunity. And she talks about a deal where she found two fourplexes that were side by side, or maybe on the same lot, so eight units. And she kind of thought about midterm rentals. Maybe this would make sense. It wasn't a super saturated market, so she decided to try it with one unit. Couldn't keep them empty. I mean, they were full all the time. So she decided to move those into the other seven units that she was using or that she owned. And uh, it went, you know, really well for her. And she continued to do that. And on top of that, she really dove into the, the creative financing world. And, you know, she got a, a, a mentor, a mentorship program, which taught her a lot of the different methods for getting creative financing. And she really just ran with it. So it's got, she's got some really good uh, tips and tricks for everybody to listen to. And before we dive into the episode, can you all do us uh, a, a solid, do us a favor and um, just give us a really lovely, nice review saying that you're enjoying our show. Thanks. That's it. And give us a shout on social media if you feel inclined. Investories pod on uh, Instagram. And uh, without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Investories, Grace Goodenkarf. Hello, thank you. You you pronounced that perfectly. It was almost like we rehearsed it just before. We, we're learning, Kyle. <laughs> we're learning. And is that is that a German surname? Yeah. Last name? It, it is? Yep. And have you dived into the family history of where it's from? Yes. Yeah, so actually, my family came over from Luxembourg. And, yeah. But if you know anything about Luxembourg, it's all German people and the German language. And I'm actually applying for my Luxembourg set, uh, citizenship right now. I'm like halfway through yeah. that. Yeah, oh, that's it's, really, cool. it's been that, really and, interesting. And then you unlock the whole of the EU. Yeah, so oh, I nice. want that red passport. <laughs> I miss my red passport. Very, I'm still very sore about it. Anyway, okay. we don't want to get I, I don't. Uh, I want to get into this. What is a red passport? What, what are we talking about here? Does this give you just free reign to stay in the EU, the EU as long as you want? Yeah, pretty if much. I, <laughs> I mean, you would probably know more than me. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, huh? um, it's... So, yeah, it's a EU... Once you get an EU passport, you can go anywhere in the EU. And I think you can settle right, Grace? Mm-hmm. Pretty much any country. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And all you need is citizenship in an EU country, and, and you get the, the license to travel anywhere, anytime, anywhere you want. Why yeah, has nobody the, ever told me about this? This is brilliant. Within the EU. And yeah. the Luxembourg passport is like the third most powerful in the world. So that's what I am excited for. But there's like this very special law about if you can prove your lineage in a very specific way, you can get the uh, Luxembourg passport. And some of my cousins did it already. They have it. So we're hmm. about in the middle of it. That's brilliant. That's awesome. If only yeah. I wasn't a member of a country that decided to leave that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, enough politics. Enough politics. Grace, thank you for jumping on the show. Um, there's so much we want to talk to you about. Um, creative finance, midterm rental, um, the mm. community you're building. Kind of where to start. Well, let's start with that. Where to start is how did you 
get how did you fall into the rabbit hole of real estate that's a good question when i was in college my boyfriend was a year older he was graduated and he flipped a farmhouse in small town iowa and i would like help paint every once in a while and i was like oh this is a good idea maybe i'll do this in like 10 years and then I graduated during COVID and I was really bored in Iowa. If you know anything about Iowa in the winter, there's nothing to do. And I was like, all right, let's flip a house. Like I've got the energy. I don't know how to do it, but let's do it. And that's kind of how it started. Wait, did you say you built a house? Flip. Oh, flipped a house, okay. Sorry, my Siri's going off for some reason. Um, so you, wait, you flipped a house. What did that look like? Did you, how did you find that property? So the first house I ever bought was actually my primary residence and we knew it was empty. So we wrote a letter to the owner and negotiated it off market. And then I ended up living in it, doing kind of a live and flip and living with my boyfriend and my sister. Um, but it was really funny cause I had absolutely no clue what was going on. I remember I like gave my earnest money directly to the seller and I like gave it to him and he looks at me and he goes, what do I do with this? And I said, I don't know. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> and he left it on his counter all 30 days until closing. And wow. we just had no clue how to get it done. But part of my spiel was let's not pay a realtor. And somehow we got it done. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a that's kind of a fun way to get into to real estate investing. I did the same thing. I had no idea what I was doing. I bought mine from my dad, and it was vacant. He was trying to rent it out, and it, he couldn't get it rented out. And I was like, "Oh, hey, you got this eighteen-year-old son over here. He'd love to have a bachelor pad, you know. So give me a shot." And uh, my plan was to flip that one, but I ended up living in it because it was two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. You know, can't do much. Can't do much then. Um, so, I mean, at what point, I mean, did you purchase this with intentions of this being an investment? Because you said you lived in it. So how did that play into things? I first started looking for an investment, but found this house and fell in love with it. It was a 1920s craftsman. So I just kind of knew, okay, if I have two roommates, each of our rent will be three, 400 bucks. It'll be perfect. So... I had the intention of making it an investment, but it kind of was, kind of wasn't. I did really well after I after I sold it upon my two year mark, because um, we added like a bathroom and all of that good stuff. But immediately after I bought that, we started looking for like a real real estate project. And so you started looking for a real project. Now, what does a real project mean to you? Was that when was that flips at, at that time, or were you thinking long term rentals because you were seeing the ability to build some wealth out of this yeah so long-term rentals the first one we got was like a full gut it was me and my boyfriend doing diy we thought it was going to take three months twenty thousand dollars to do this 1600 square foot full gut took six months thirty six thousand dollars working all through the summer every weekend every night but we got it done and it was a fantastic um end result and we still have that that was two years ago so I want to take it back a second. How did you get the how did you get through the education piece or how did you learn to fit these things together and, and kind of start this journey? 
Yeah, so my boyfriend had been listening to Bigger Pockets, and kind of whenever I was in the car with him, he would listen to it, and then I started to take an interest. I started listening on my own. I made an Instagram like immediately with my first property, learned a ton from people on there, like watching bigger investors do things. I read some books, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that hard. Um, And I'm somebody who I just need to know a little bit and I'll jump in. So that first one, I did a ton of learning. I didn't know how to analyze it. But by the second one, like I bought one property and then I turned around and bought two duplexes together. So four, like three months later. So like I learned pretty quick and I just went all in. <laughs> this is something, this, oh, sorry, John. This is something we don't talk about a whole lot on here is I guess the power of social media. You know, when we talk about education and trying to learn about real estate investing, a lot of people just kind of go through hard knocks, you know, it's just trial and error, see what works, see what doesn't work. And then you get the extreme other side who just buries themselves in traditional education and then oftentimes never even pull the trigger because you know, yeah. you get that fear aspect of it. But I like the idea of social media. You ran straight out when you got this idea, started a social media you know, platform, I guess on Instagram and, and started learning from other people. So what were the beginnings of that like? Because anybody can do that, right? So anybody who's listening can just go out and say, all right, well, I just bought this flip, have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm just going to document everything that I'm doing on this and maybe people will start following me and interacting and give me advice, make some contents, financing, you know, all these different things. And it's such a powerful tool. What did the beginning of that look like for you when you first started that Instagram account? Yeah. So I would just post, oh, I'm reading this book. Like, oh, this is what the house looks like that we just purchased. And I was posting a lot about that very specific house and that renovation. And then just posting about things that I was learning. Thankfully, like I would say I'm a quick learner because I take action. So I don't just sit and learn and learn and learn. I learn and I do and I learn and I do. Um, So that was really, it was really fun to just dive right into it. Like I found real estate and I was like, let's go. This is it. I'm going all in. (laughs) And did you find that people were mostly pretty encouraging whenever you were doing that? Or did you get, you know how social media is. You get the people on there who are like, oh, I can do it better than that, or that was a stupid thing for you to do. Was everybody pretty much encouraging, giving tips, and and following along, and and that type of stuff? Yeah, I think everybody's so encouraging and supporting, and I still find this. You'll find people who are not in the real estate community who will leave, like, mean comments or, like, say that landlords are ruining the earth. Um, (laughs) But for the most part, everybody is so open and honest and willing to share uh, tips and success and failures and I have seriously the social media real estate community has been absolutely pivotal in my career like in my real estate career absolutely yeah I have experienced the exact same thing and the other side of it I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today um, the landlord hate is a real thing out there right now and I I understand to a certain degree because there's a lot of little scummy landlords mm-hmm. And, uh, but on the other side of it, it's like, if you own this place and you know, you get, you get the keyboard warriors who just jump out there and say, okay, well, this person should be offering it for free. Um, you know, this is too much money and they don't know anything about this particular market. And it's amazing the difference in markets. Uh, where do you invest or where, where was the beginnings of your investing? Was it all, was it in Iowa? Yep. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. All my properties are within 15 minutes of each other. So I have a very specific area that I invest in. Nice, nice. Have you ever considered going outside your area or is it one of those it's not broke, don't fix it type of things? 
It's a, it's not broke, don't fix it. However, I do want to add another market in the next year or two if we might move and just maybe do some duplex house hacks here and there for yeah. more of an appreciation market because I'm in a very cash flow, low appreciation market. So I'd love to balance out the two. I love that. If you wouldn't mind even just sharing just a little bit, because I, I talk about that all the time and, and I, I'm, anybody who's listening has heard me talk about cash flow versus appreciation. Maybe you can kind of narrow down for the, for our new listeners what the difference is between those two things and how you get them in different areas. Yeah, so I like to think of cash flow and appreciation as like a linear scale. You're probably never going to have both. If you have really great cash flow, you have low appreciation and vice versa. Um, and then you can get like right in the middle. But for example, Los Angeles is going to have fantastic appreciation. People saw $100,000 of appreciation in 2021, 2020. But you're not going to cash flow anything because it's so expensive. In Cedar Rapids, you can get $1,200 rent from a $90,000 property. That's good cash flow. But your appreciation, you, you literally will never appreciate $100,000. It just, it's not like that. Um, so I am in a very uh, cash flow where everything works really well. I get the 1.2% rule, probably minimum. Wow. But I'm not going to get rich off appreciation soon. Over 30 years, I'll do fantastic. But, you know, you're not going to see a huge jump in your portfolio in just a few years like you would in other cities. Yeah. And there's there's a very specific, <coughs> excuse me, there's a very specific reason why, and, and this is where people need to set their goals, right? So you got you to gotta figure out what is it that I'm trying, what am I investing for? Am I looking for mm-hmm. cash flow because I'm trying to get out of a job? You know, if I need to replace my income, then the cash flow makes a lot of sense. And that's where I started out. But if you are doing, if you're in wealth preservation, if you're in wealth building and the cash flow really doesn't matter to you so much, you don't mind the ups and the downs of the market, then these appreciation markets are huge. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the coastal city or coastal, you know, big cities are, are where you're going to find a lot of your big time appreciation markets and not so much cash flow. But when you narrow down to the red states and the Midwest and the South, a lot of those are going to be your appreciation markets. So, so you've settled on cash flow at this point, and you've got a you know, I guess we haven't talked about your second rental, your long term rental. So, what what did you guys invest in? You know, after you've started, after you got your original house. Yeah, and it never even occurred to me to invest elsewhere. Like when I started, it was like it's here or nowhere. I, I didn't know what long distance investing was. Um, but yeah, right away we started to do single family and small multifamily and we've pretty much stuck to that big rehabs, um, mixed in with midterm rentals and creative financing. That's really our whole portfolio. And we've held 95% of everything we've ever bought. I've only sold my primary and then a house I bought with another investor. That's awesome. In terms of that sort of sweet spot or that thing you're looking for and it, it's probably the property and as we go into creative financing the person what does that what do you look for in a property yeah so i buy in cedar rapids iowa i want to do a perfect burr so i'm probably picking up a house that needs some rehab um, medium to extensive rehab i want to cash flow long-term rental 200 if it's a midterm rental which i'm probably not buying any more of those because i have 13 right now I probably want to cash for $500 a door. So that's what it looks like. I want a good neighborhood, B, B class neighborhood. Um, I don't like to do D or C class because I want my houses to, within Cedar Rapids, be on the higher appreciating side, not the lower appreciating side. And I just want to always have good tenants. So I shoot for B class properties. 
Let's just talk about that for a second. Um, I know Kyle was about to pull the trigger on a question. Um, but <laughs> regarding regarding classification of, of properties, neighbourhoods, is there a hard and fast rule for that? Um, it's not something you can just Google, right, and say A class, B class, to a point. You, you can mm-hmm. get that information. What do you look for in a, it to make it a, a B class neighbourhood? Yeah, you definitely can't Google it. So what I tell people is the A class is going to be brand new construction, hip hot downtown area b class is like your suburbs still a great neighborhood lots of families c class is starting to be iffy like maybe not your favorite place to be but not a huge deal and then d class is like you definitely don't want to be there at night that nobody wants to live there they have to live there because it's the cheapest area yeah and see and you know the really important question this is i guess more for people who are investing out from where they live but um, ask, you just touched on a question that I love to ask property managers because that's one of the things that I'll reach out to, one of the types of uh, industries I reach out to if I'm looking at a new market and I've never been there before. I'll say, you know, I'll be looking at a particular address and I'll ask them, would you take your family for a walk here at nighttime? Mm. And that, I mean, typically you'll get the spiel, oh, I can't, I can't tell you on a one to 10 scale where this is at because that means I'm being biased, blah, 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 whatever. But the fact of the matter is, if you make it personal, you, you, you question them personally, hey, would you walk your family there at nighttime? And they're like, oh, gosh, no. Well, then obviously you probably don't want to invest there. You're looking at a C, C, D class type of an area. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it's all about what kind of stuff you're trying to invest in, too. You know, there's some people who just love these types of places. You know, everybody needs a place to live. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's really what you're, what you're looking to do. But, you know, you, so in Cedar Rapids there, you, you talked about being into midterm rentals. And we've had, uh, we had the, the CEO of, of Furnish Finder on here, and we got a chance to really kind of knock, knock out what the, the midterm rentals are. Um, but I've always been curious how people move to that section, because for the longest time, it's always been either long-term rentals or short-term rentals. And then here over the last few years, midterm rentals have become a lot more popular. So where did that idea come from? Yeah, so my friend Amelia had somehow stumbled into midterm rentals in a different market in Iowa about two hours away. So I bought an eight-unit apartment building, which is which two fourplexes, and it had one vacancy. So I was like, okay, this is the perfect opportunity to try a midterm rental. I'm only going to spend a few thousand dollars in furnishings, and if it doesn't work, you know, I only tried one. Well, I got bombarded with requests, so as I was vacating each unit and rehabbing it, I was already lining up a tenant for the next one before it was even done without like any pictures because there was that much demand. So I ended up doing all eight of those units as midterms. So I kind of fell into it just because of the demand. I really rode that demand. And then I ended up taking three or four of my long-term rentals and converting those because I noticed there was a need for houses with yards for people who were traveling with pets. So that's how I got to the all the midterm rentals I have today. That was all within one year. <laughs> and in terms of noticing that need, and I think I've, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in midterms and kind of how that skews a market or how that def- is defined in a market. What, what did that look like, that research or that kind of technique to pick up? Um, oh, there's a there's a demand for that. Was it through Furnish Finder data or just inquiries or what did that look like? Yeah, I went to Furnish Finder, searched their map. I saw there was like a handful of listings and I had no idea what that meant. Was that because I didn't know what the demand was until I literally made my listing. So I just took that risk. That was just a blind risk. Um, I just had a 
pretty good idea like hey there's not really that many listings there are some big hospitals I feel like this is gonna work and then after that listing I'd get 10 requests for the property so then I'd say to the person hey you can't get it now but in three weeks I'll have the next one do you want that and they'd be like yes and I just kept doing that until I had filled like 10 or 12 midterms I'm curious about what the time demand is on something like this you know, short-term rentals, we've, we've heard from a lot of people saying this is a far more involved than long-term rentals, mainly because there's so many turnovers. So with midterm rentals, and you, saying you, you said you had 13 of them? Yeah. So what type of time commitment does this require of you? I would say I was doing five hours a week once they were stabilized, so definitely more than long-term. I think if all my properties were long-term, it'd be like two hours a month. Like theirs is very easy. Um midterm yeah probably 20 hours a month which to me was still reasonable but it was also a really great way for me to get the demand to have an internal property manager so I hired somebody to work for me as a w-2 and take that over because with 30 long terms or sorry 20 long terms I wouldn't have had the workload to hire somebody but my midterms helped me get there and hire it out quicker so that was another huge added bonus so the yeah the midterms topped up that um, need I guess yeah. that, that's really interesting that's a great way of, of looking at it and have you have you outsourced any of the communication and things like that or is that still done by you yeah so she does everything except for controlling oh, okay. my bank account so I don't even know who my tenants are which is awesome from going from somebody who knows every tenant in my head like I know what they look like I know who they are to I have no clue who's in my properties right now. And what's your, in terms of when you're analyzing midterm rentals, do you have like a rule of thumb? So, so I guess the context is we have a, a short term rental and we were like, well, what's the break even if we had to do it as a long term rental? Oh, it, it's still, it's not going to cash flow, but it's also not going to put us in the poor house. Um, is that kind of the, your calculations or is there a bit more to it than that? Yeah, I don't think the midterm rental market's been around long enough with this demand to understand how long it will stay. So I definitely wanted them to be able to work as a long-term rental. They're not going to be a home run at a long-term rental, but it will work. That was my rule of thumb. I'm curious about the employee that you have. If you don't mind breaking down a little bit, do you still have this employee that takes care of them? Okay. Um, I'm curious how, how do you, this is something that I'm just curious for my own, my own person. I don't have an employee. I, I run everything through property managers and bookkeepers and such, but I've considered hiring somebody just to take the care of the day to day. How do you, how do you pay this person? Is this, you know, are they on a, is it like a sales job or do you pay them commissions or is this something, somebody you have on, you said W2. So I'm guessing like a salary of some sort. Yeah. So she's, I pay her $20 an hour, which for my area is pretty good especially yeah, for an online absolutely. job because I didn't want to mess around with hiring a $13 an hour attitude and a $13 an hour ability. I just went straight to this is what I think is fair and I want somebody who's capable. Um, and I found someone who is a project manager. She just does this on the side for me. She logs five to 10 hours a week. Um, lately it's really been like five hours a week and not any commission yet. I've been wanting to work that out. I just haven't. But I did the math, so I make like $25,000 of gross income every month. If I hired a property manager at 10%, that's 2500 
more than likely I'd probably have to hire them at 20% for all my midterm rentals. So that's closer to 5,000. I pay her less than a thousand. So for me to just go straight to that $20 an hour, I was doing the difference between a thousand and 5,000. Like that's huge savings and the quality control. That was something I was not willing to do. I was not willing to step down my quality because I bought my eight unit from a professionally managed and I'm doing air quotes, professionally managed (laughs) company and there was so much money on the table there was coin laundry not working there was broken down cars in the parking lot it was under rented it was rented to terrible tenants in a great neighborhood so i was just like i'm not willing to go there sounds like the perfect asset right there that's great Mm -hmm. so so how do you find these people did you post something on indeed that you said you were looking for for somebody to work remotely and is this person local to you this person is about a 25-minute drive. She does 99% of her work remotely um, because I am like five minutes away from my properties, which I'm hoping to move so that I can just be not doing anything um, in person. I posted on Indeed, and I posted on LinkedIn. I don't think I got a single like response. I ended up posting in a Facebook investor group, and she replied and, and applied to it in like a day, and I honestly, I think I got super, super lucky. But an investor group is a perfect place to find somebody who's interested and willing to learn um, because that's going to be the best of both worlds. You're going to get somebody who's excited about it and they are going to get invaluable knowledge about how to build a successful real estate portfolio. So that's what I would do if I were going to do it again. Stick to investor groups. That's good advice. Yeah. find Seek out people that want to be in the space and yeah. uh, half the work's done, right? People are curious. Kyle, I want to take a little... Um, journey to the left or right of where we're at the moment which is we're on a bit of a creative finance journey at the moment and I want to dig into how you've I guess the inertia of money and how you've built this um, portfolio kind of from from the ground up Um, with I guess creative financing um, I'm assuming traditional financing means but can you talk us through kind of the broad strokes of what that looks like? Yeah, creative financing is anything other than your typical cash offer or financed offer. And there's a million ways to do quote-unquote creative financing. There's seller financing, there's wrap mortgage, there's a lease sandwich, sub to whatever you want to call it. There's a million ways to do it. And the best part is that when you go to a bank, three of your four deal terms are fixed. The only thing you get to change is the purchase price. So your interest rate, your down payment, and your term length are fixed by the bank. When you do creative financing, you get to make all four of those, and that's where the magic happens. And then, in regard to your your journey, what's that looked like in terms of, I guess, learning that creative finance piece, but actually using it and kind of gearing up through different assets? Yeah, so I I did a mentorship with Jen and Joe Delafave, uh, learning about creative financing, pretty pretty soon into my um, journey, I guess. Um, and I just went, I just learned it and immediately started talking to sellers, messed up a ton of phone calls, had no clue what I was doing, but I learned. It probably took me three or four months to get like my first creative deal. Um, and since then, so in the last like year and a half, maybe two years, I've probably done 10 to 15 creative deals. I've wholesaled a few and done the rest myself. Um, and I just got another creative deal under contract for 25 years last night. So super exciting. <laughs> 25 years. That's a that's a good chunk of time right there. That's a, yeah. Now, 
One sec. Did you say lease sandwich? Did that, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, what in the world is a lease sandwich? I, li- I like that. It's kind of like rent to own, but where you are kind of also doing rental arbitrage. So a good example is if you're dealing with somebody who has a time-sensitive lien, for example, maybe a historical grant that's going to have to be paid back if you aren't in the property for X amount of years. You could do an option agreement to buy it and then start renting it and re-rent it. So it's like an arbitrage with rent to own. And that option agreement is what basically gives you the right to purchase it at X price in X amount of years. So maybe it's like three years. You have three years to purchase this property for 100K. But the reason you're waiting is for that lien to expire. Mm. like some Or okay. down payment assistance. A lot of buyers have down payment assistance and they have to be in the property for five years. Otherwise, they have to pay it back. So you want to wait because you don't want to have to pay that extra 10K or 20K or whatever. And then you go and you either rent it long term, mid term, short term, or you also give a option deposit to a rent to own tenant. So interesting. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, I like it. I'm gonna have to Google it. If I Google it, will I find something, or is it gonna be something delicious from Jimmy John's? Is that what? (laughs) This is Subway. Yeah, I don't know if this. Did you make this up, or is this 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 is a real term? Right. Funny. I think you would find it. I mean, I almost did one with this property that I got for 25 years they almost did that because she had a down payment assistance loan that would have put her at negative equity if i had paid off so i almost did that but i ended up editing it and changing it to for a win-win situation which is the beauty of creative financing gotcha i'm curious so sticking on creative financing what type i mean you talked about the different terms that you can set but what do you look for so what does one of your offers look like when you find something you think would make a great long-term or mid-term rental what what do you what is the i mean obviously 25 years for a fixed term is phenomenal mm-hmm. what do you shoot for and what do you usually settle with so i have two kind of buy boxes if it's a fixer upper i don't need a long-term length i need months not years to fix it up and so i'll tell them i'll give you your price but can you wait six months for me to give it to you and that just saves me my interest payments going and finding a private money or hard money or using my own cash and they're like, yeah, sure, I can. I guess I can wait a little bit to get that better price. Or maybe they have, they owe what it's worth, so it doesn't matter anyways because they're not getting any money. And then the second thing, so that's like my fixers. If I'm getting a really long term length and taking over a really good note, I want it to be turnkey because I don't want to put any money into it because I don't want to refinance because I already have my super good. Um, terms. So this 25-year one, it's 3.6%. So I want to put as little as money in it as possible because I'm never going to refinance 3.6%. So I don't want to dump money into it. That makes sense. And in terms of finding these properties and finding these sellers, how do you, how do, you do that? You, the, the, the dream scenario is, is the <laughs> one you talked through from yesterday, right? How did, you, how did you find that person? How did you find that property? Yeah, so I have a super big, super big, okay, that's not accurate, but I have a strong Facebook presence for my business. It's called Good Morning Investments, and I'm always just posting about my business, before and afters, how we can buy off-market and save you realtor fees, buy as-is, all that good stuff, talking about my referral program, so if you tell me an address of somewhere that's for sale off-market and I close, I'll give you $1,000, just like that. You don't even have to do anything except for give me the address. And also a lot of like cheesy stuff that people who tend to spend a lot of time on Facebook love. So that's where I'm really nurturing those leads. 
and I'm turning everybody who's watching my Facebook into mini billboards for me with that referral program. So every time I'm telling my audience, hey, I want to give you $1,000, who do you know that's selling off market? I get so many leads and all three houses I've closed this year have been referrals. So it's somebody who doesn't even necessarily know me, but they know somebody who knows me. That person gets $1,000. The seller gets to sell their house off market, not pay realtor fees, sell as is. And then I get an off market deal. Yeah, I, I think that's that's phenomenal. I mean, that's really building your brand at the same time, right? I mean, you've got a brand to build because you've got a specific goal in mind for your business. And, mm-hmm. and that's a great way to go about doing it. Now, you talk about off-market properties. Do you ever look at on-market properties? Do you ever see any, any uh, I know with creative financing, on-market t- typically tends to be very difficult. Not impossible, but very difficult. Do you ever look at on-market properties or find opportunities there? It is a lot harder for me because I'm used to the off-market world. Um, and I like to be in control of the conversation. I like people coming to me with the referral program. If you are going on market, I don't think I've ever bought a property on market. Um, yeah, I don't think I ever have. If you are on market, you're going to look for those, those really long days on market, um, and be telling them, Hey, if I can get your seller, their price and the, realtors commission paid are you open to a conversation about seller financing and you want to make sure that you have the realtor and the seller on the same phone call because you cannot risk letting the realtor butcher what's going on to the seller because they will because if they knew what creative financing was they would have already sold the property so that's my advice what are those (laughs) conversations with and and i guess more more so um for for the non-on-market or the off-market even um, properties, what do those conversations with a seller typically look like? Are there is there, you know, I guess a lot of education for them and then kind of shaping the world in how you see it, that kind of thing. Is, is that fair? Yeah. So the first thing my mentors ever told me was they're not real estate investors. They don't need to understand how it works. They need usually a set few questions answered, and they're good to go. So there's a few ways that you can go after the conversation depending on what the situation is. Obviously, first and foremost, you have to figure out why they're selling. And creative financing, a lot of times, is distressed sellers, not distressed properties. And as burrs, burr investors or flippers, we're used to the distressed property, so the really crappy fixer-upper, when it's definitely a mindset switch with creative financing. So... Um, one way I like to frame the conversation is if they have a really nice house, I'll say, hey, typically what we do, we go and we make all cash lowball offers and on houses that are really disgusting and people accept it because they don't want to fix it up. Your house is really pretty. You're obviously not going to accept my lowball offer, although I'm happy to make it if you're interested. A way that I can give you full price is, is by selling on terms. Are you interested in talking about this? And they'll be like, yeah, oh, thank you. Like you basically anchored them low with your lowball offer. But then you're saying, I do have another solution. Are you interested in hearing it? And a lot of the times they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want the lowball. We want the good offer. And that's how you can pitch selling on terms or slash creative financing slash seller financing. That's a great way to use the psychology of this to, I mean, it's, I, I do this myself, and it's it's nothing where you're trying to take advantage of this person. It's really just trying to figure out what it is that their needs are. Mm-hmm. And if you can pitch it in a way where it sounds like, look, I'm trying to accomplish what you want. 
I'm also going to accomplish what I want, and you're upfront about that, then, I mean, that's, that's perfectly fine, and, and it's really the best way to go. Um, in terms of the financing, you know, you start out, let's say that you're, you're getting something that you need to put some money into, so it's going to be short term, and you plan on refinancing out later. So when you refinance out later, um, this is typically into a long-term note because you said you don't, you don't sell, right? Have you have you had to uh, I guess change your creative financing method to account for the change in, in current market conditions with interest rates and things like that? Yeah, definitely. You gotta adjust running your numbers. So you just gotta get a better deal because interest rates are worse. So that's I'm still running the numbers in terms of cash flow the same, no matter how I'm acquiring it. But it also is really increasing the importance of finding those long term deals, those long note creative financing deals. And are you getting much pushback from people? Because I would assume that, you know, when you run your numbers the same, but your refinance strategy changes, then probably offers are going to be a little bit lower or you're going to ask for a lower interest rate or maybe a longer fixed term. Are you getting more pushback from people compared to maybe what you were getting a year ago or a year and a half ago? Um, I just tell people, hey, the market's changing. And, you know, I try not to go in and again, I try not to educate. And a lot of times people believe you and again I'm not here to schmooze or scam anybody like I try to be very honest and I try to always make a win-win situation but the good thing is with creative financing is if even if it is a lower price there are still ways for them to make more money um, by either waiting for that final price or selling it at a little bit of interest or um, you know there's just you get a you get to operate all for pillars of the deal instead of just one so you can really twist and pull and push to make an offer that works for both of you and i wanted to dive into the the offer a little bit more if i could which is so i i'm kind of looking at seller financing deals and and that's obviously something everyone's running to at the moment with the crazy interest rates do you only look at properties that have zero debt on them or do you look at taking over debt or paying off debt or moving it what does that look like most of mine have debt and most of mine have very little equity that's actually a great niche to chase because they don't have the room to sell with a realtor or to wait or to demand a really large down payment so little equity low equity houses are the perfect creative financing deal because you can probably take it over for what they owe for the rest of the life of their loan and no down payment. Now, are we are we discussing more along the lines of, I don't know if you're familiar with Subject 2? Is that kind of a, a, what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, so Subject 2, I call it a wrap mortgage. It's very similar. Um, a wrap mortgage, though, there might be a little bit of equity and then you're also just making sure the seller's protected with a promissory note in a mortgage but those two are pretty much interchangeable gotcha and are these the ones that are the long term for you so these are the ones you're shooting for 25 years on you want you want to get the rest of the terms that are loaned to take advantage of what the interest rate was that they had correct exactly yeah i've really started pivoting to instead of negotiating five ten years if you have no equity anyways can i just have the rest of your loan oh yeah i like that that's great can, can you talk us through an example of that, like yeah. how the numbers work? Yeah, I'll talk you through the example I have from yesterday. And this was one that um, I had to get a little creative because I put it under contract. She was going to have like $15,000 of equity. And I initially was going to fix it up and sell it. So I negotiated just the one-year term. 
Then I found out, okay, it needs maybe about $10,000 of sewer um, repairs. And part of her loan was a down payment assistance that would probably have to be paid back. So pretty quickly, she went to having ten, fifteen thousand of equity to negative equity. So what I told her is, I'm still willing to do this deal if I can get the rest of your the life of your loan. What I don't know at closing is if you're gonna have to pay that four thousand um, dollar down payment assistance back. I'm willing to take that chance if you give me the 25 years. So if you give me the 25 years and you have to pay it at closing, I'll cover it. If you don't have to pay it back, great. You're you're in a better position and I assume that $4,000 loan, if that makes sense. So I went from looking at it from a fix and flip, very short term to, okay, I'm going to make this 25 years, 3.6% mortgage. I want that. I'm just going to put in the minimum of the property and it'll still be a great rental. Love it. That's fantastic. I like the, the, the creative thought process that you put into this because a lot of people really do shy away from creative financing if there's a loan on the property. Myself did the exact same thing for years and years and years where it was like, I'd pitch seller financing. No, I have a loan. I have to get paid off. I'm like, okay, thanks. Goodbye. And, you know, I can't imagine the number of deals that I've passed on in the past for that reason. So yeah, um, we'd like to pivot a little bit into wins. You know, we'd, we'd love to hear success stories. We'd love to hear not so successful stories as well. Um, give us an example of one of each, if you could. Where, what, Maybe one deal that you just knocked it out of the park and you wish you could recreate it a hundred times. And maybe one that you wished you hadn't even done one time. Because everybody's got one. <laughs> yeah. So one deal I knocked out of the park, we bought an eight unit. So two fourplexes right next to each other. That's the one I did all midterm rentals. Um, and we DIY'd the whole thing. When I put it under contract, I didn't even know how to analyze multifamily. But I knew it was a good deal. And I also didn't have the money to buy it. But I knew I'd find the money. So that ended up being about a nine-month project. We did fantastic. It was a perfect burr. Still cash flows um, really well, and we still have it. So that was super exciting because that was like definitely a, a next step in my real estate investing. It was very scary at the time. Looking back, I'm like, oh, I could do that 100 times. Um, so yeah, that would probably be a win. If, if I could maybe just even dig into that just a little bit. You said that you didn't have the money. So how did you buy it? So I bought it with a bank loan and had private money for the down payment and rehab. And the way that I was able to get the proof of funds was because I had private money for a different project in my bank account at the time. So it was it was divine timing a little bit. Um, and I had already had an established relationship with this lender. We were, I mean, I'd already bought probably six, seven houses with them. So they trusted me and I just made sure I had a ton of um, wiggle room in all of my numbers and then we refinanced paid off the original note the private money and the rehab and now have we own it 100% just us but there is more debt on the property than if we had put our own money into it and do you have any of those deals that I t- that I was talking about where maybe you shouldn't have done that or you should you would have done it completely differently if you had a chance to do it over absolutely so one, I have two. One has still worked out, but I'm just waiting for it to like and not. I accidentally bought a property in an area that was not very nice because I was confused on 
there, there's two roads that it is very it is night and day and I was one road off <laughs> and I bought it creative financing no money down actually I think I put like three grand down to catch this guy's mortgage up and I put to rent to own tenant in there and he gave me a good down payment and he's been in there for over a year the last couple of months he got really behind and I was really nervous it was going to be my first eviction and with it being a rent to own I figured it would be a super long eviction and I was just waiting for it to go into the toilet um, luckily he paid up and we'll see if he's able to stay paid up so that one I'm, I'm waiting it's like on the brink of being a bad deal but so far it's been fine so you, you purchased this one, sorry to interrupt you, but you, you purchased this one on a seller financing deal and then you lease optioned to somebody yes. immediately upon closing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, and then you took a, an option fee at the beginning when you put that, that yeah. the tenant in there. And so if he defaults and you have to evict him, you keep that option fee and then you can actually go out and do it all over again, right? Yes, absolutely. But the reason I'm nervous about doing it all over again is because it's not in a great area. So I'm like, I found the one tenant. I want him to stay. (laughs) I want him to be successful. (laughs) I don't want to have to show that property again. And I just have a feeling he's got a lot of half projects in there. So I, I just don't know what the condition of the house is in. But yeah, I put three grand down and I collected 14,000 from him. So immediately I'm up like $11,000 plus my cash flow. So that was a great deal. And I would never have bought that house cash or with a, with a note, uh, unless it was seller financing because of the area. But with, again, with rent, with being able to do rent to own, I'll buy houses in like the C-class areas, knowing I'm going to put one tenant in there and be done. I'm not going to do vacant. I'm not going to do maintenance. I'm not going to do repairs and there's going to be no vacancy, hopefully. (laughs) I like it. And there was one more, right? I think Kyle's, Kyle's been poking at the bad news. Yeah. So another deal, this was the one I sold with a partner. Um, we just underestimated rehab and underestimated um, the repairs that were needed. Didn't lose money on it or anything. I think I made like five grand. But we were going to do it. We bought it seller financing. We were going to just clean it and paint it and then make 20, 30K on the market but we just really underestimated and it really drug out um, and just wasn't as hopeful as we had thought. But luckily I've been really fortunate to not do any bad deals. <laughs> so those are my worst two. So what, one thing I did want to ask you about, and this is, I, it's kind of attached to wins, but also to, to mindset and, and kind of giving back, was the community you're, you're part of and, and, and building. Can you talk us through um, kind of what you're doing in that space? Yeah, and actually I just want to say, I take this back, I did an arbitrage for a midterm rental, and at the end of the year-long lease, I had a lot of trouble with the other tenant smoking. I just realized I won't ever do arbitrage again. I probably netted like $1,000 on that, and it was not worth, worth the headache. Um, so that was my worst deal. But again, I wasn't out any money. So always own the real estate. Don't arbitrage because you're not in control of the other tenants. Um, well, and there seems to be like a, a major, I don't know how much you follow the, the arbitrage community right now for for small and midterm rentals, but they are struggling. And I don't know if that's happening, you know, if you're seeing any anything in your particular market where things have slowed down pretty drastically as far as, you know, the short and midterm goes. But man, I, I listened to some of the, the horror stories. These people can't get out of their leases and mm-hmm. now they can't get anybody in there to make these lease payments for them and they're defaulting. And I mean, it's just nasty out there right now. So I agree with you, own the real estate. Yeah, 
I would probably never do an arbitrage deal unless I was going to make like over a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, I like that form of uh, <laughs> protective thinking. And I've seen that recently as well, Kyle, that, uh, you know, the, the people that have picked up 100 units or 10 units arbitraging and are now like, oh, hang on a minute. This lease is mm-hmm. quite a lot every month and I don't even own it. I'm just paying someone else, which is is kind of crazy. Um, in terms of the community, Grace, and maybe this is a conversation we need to bring Amelia in as, as well on. Um, I'm going to poke for an invite uh to amelia and we can talk building communities down the line but but what how did that come about and kind of what's the the driver and the the mission behind it yes so we are co-founders amelia and i of women invest in real estate wire and i posted 2021 in january that i wanted to start a women's meetup and i had like one rental property i actually don't think i even owned it i think i was under contract so i didn't even have any real estate besides my primary. So I really had no business like leading a women's meetup, but I decided to do it anyway. So I just brought people who knew what they were talking about and just, I organized it. And then that turned into doing retreats and courses and partnering with Amelia to do wire. And it's been absolutely amazing. We just got back from a retreat in Salt Lake City um, in this beautiful mansion in the mountains where we had 20 women from all over the U.S., come um we did like masterminds and hot seats and different sessions and just the networking and learning from each other was insane so definitely wouldn't be where i am without all the people i've met through wire and if you're thinking about starting your own community or joining a community i highly 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 recommend great words uh, of advice i'd echo that or start a podcast kyle I swear this mute, this mute button is going to kill me. I can never shut the every thing off. Every time, that's, every no. time. <laughs> yeah, don't do the podcast though. That's a that's a giant pain in the butt. The, the editing Thanks. part is just really really difficult. For me. <laughs> every time the editing. Grace, <laughs> what's the best way people can get in touch with you? Yeah, so I think the best way to get in touch with me is on Instagram. I'm Grace Investing. If you want to get in touch with Wire, you can follow us at wire.community with two eyes. Or email us at hello at womeninvestinrealestate.com. Amazing. We'll put all that in the show notes um, for sure so people can easily connect with you. Um, Grace, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's gone really quickly, and that's always the sign of a good conversation, I think. Um, I'd like to get you guys back on to, to talk community for sure. I think uh, that would be super interesting. Kyle, you, you're interested in community? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> but we would love to. Grace, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.